You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome to episode 12, season one. I'm excited to introduce our guests today because we have two of them, Jeff and Sherry Surratt. Jeff and Sherry are a ministry couple who founded ministrytogether.com. They serve uh, people in ministry in all manner of churches, and both Jeff and Sherry bring a phenomenal depth of ministry experience uh, everywhere they go. Jeff served as um, campus expansion pastor at Seacoast Church. He served at Saddleback Church. He was also managing director of Exponential, uh, and he's authored many books. Uh, Sherry as well uh, is no slouch. She spent years at Seacoast Church. She was leadership community director for Leadership Network. She used to be the CEO of Mops International and director of parenting strategy for the Orange Group, the Rethink Group. And she's also uh, written several books. And then Jeff and Sherry right now have a book out together on ministry couples. It's just wonderful. Uh, Sherry is also uh, a consultant with the Unstuck Group. For those of you who know Tony Morgan, uh, basically, Jeff and Sherry are a goldmine of leadership experience, and it's a privilege for me to call them some of my dearest friends. Uh, it's actually Jeff and Sherry who very kindly connected me to Leadership Network and then HarperCollins in order to get this book published. So I'm indebted to them on a number of levels, which is why they were the very first people I ever asked to interview. And maybe you're wondering, well, if they're the first ones you uh, asked to interview, why are they so late in the program? The simple answer is, I wasn't a very good interviewer back then. So as you're going to listen first to Jeff and then to Sherry, uh, I think you'll find great content from them in spite of some of my questioning. So sit through it. It's absolutely worth it to hear some of the gold that they have for us today. All right, Jeff. Well, thanks for joining us on Managing Leadership Anxiety. And uh, I just want to start by asking you to tell us, how did you get into leadership? I would love to say I was president of my you know class and I was the quarterback of the football team and all of that but everyone who knew me when I was younger would say yeah well that none of that's true yeah. I really got into leadership from a desire to be in ministry I come from kind of a interesting family in that everyone in my family is in vocational ministry of some kind my grandfather was a pastor my father was a pastor uncles pastors aunts married to pastors and so it was kind of the family business and I I didn't want to go into it as a high school uh, kid, but it just kind of felt drawn to it. I, I think it was a call, you know, I don't know how yeah. to define that exactly. And yeah. so actually as a, between my sophomore and junior year of college, I dropped out of college. Um, I married my childhood sweetheart, Sherry, and I became a youth pastor for my father. And so for the first time, really, I had helped in youth ministry as a kid and you know, all of those types of things. But for the first time in my life, I was leading something. And I, I, I walked in really with no preparation at all. I didn't yeah. have, um, I, I had great leaders that I loved growing up, but not really mentors. And so suddenly I was being asked questions that I had no answer to. I was two years older than a lot of the kids in my youth group. Right. And they were going through stuff that I, I didn't have a clue. And parents were asking me things I had no idea. So I think really my introduction to leadership was at 20 years old, brand new husband, um, a brand new youth pastor, didn't really have an education other than a couple of years of Bible college. And suddenly I'm a leader and yeah, trying to figure it charge. out as I went. And honestly, yeah. that was 36 years ago. And really to this day, kind of feel like I'm swimming upstream, uh, kind of 
hiding the fact that I don't have the education and I don't have the experience, but I, I wind up in leadership positions over and over and over again. Yeah, okay. So you keep finding yourself being handed the ball to, to lead. When in that process for you did you start to realize you had some leadership gifts? You know, it, it, I can't point to a moment or a time, and, and even to this day, and I, I'm just trying to be as authentic as I can to this day, I step back and think, well, do I have leadership gifts or do I just wind up being in the right place in the right time over and over again? And, and I, I can't answer that question. I do know that it seems like I, I, I figured out early on when I would be in a room, if no one would step up and lead, right. I would find myself being the one that was leading the conversation. I found that people would come to me and ask for input on what I, where I think they should go. And so very, I, was, I was quite a ways into ministry, to be honest with you. In fact, I was sitting in a, in a church conference at a large, a large conference, a large church, and they were kind of showing us their their way of ministry, and that was the first time I really heard um, leadership, leadership, leadership. It's all about leadership, and mm. you know you got to grow your leadership skills. and And I remember thinking, well, what if you're not a leader and you just happen to be in ministry? Right. But since that day, I've realized actually, no, God, God has given me leadership abilities, given me leadership opportunity. I feel like I maybe have to work a little harder at it because I don't not necessarily have some of the traditional, you know, charismatic um, type of leadership that, that you see in, in, in the prototypical leader. Uh-huh. But I do realize that um, it's probably, I don't know, God may have a sense of humor, <laughs> but he puts me in situations that needs a leader. And then kind of the Holy Spirit, I guess, says, I think it's you. It's you need to, to lead. do something. Yeah. yeah. And you were describing when you were that 20-year-old youth minister what I think is a common companion to all leaders, which would be known as the imposter syndrome. So, for example, um, I don't belong here. I'm out of my league. Somebody's going to show up who knows what they're doing, and it's going to expose that I'm a fraud. That's the strongest way to put it. Does that trigger any reaction in you, either in that situation or other leadership situations? Oh, over and over and over again. Um, when we very first started as youth pastors, my wife and I, um, I remember one of the very first services she came to after we got married. I started a few months before we got married. And I did a sermon on the evils of sex outside of marriage. And I thought this was just the greatest sermon of all time. That <laughs> yeah. And I read passage after passage out of context of why God, you know, here's what God thinks about this. And after end of the message, I asked my bride, you know, what do you think of that? And she's always very complimentary. And then she said, <laughs> one question I had is, what if they don't believe the Bible? <laughs> and at that moment, I thought, I'm in big trouble because that's all I got. And yeah. I'm not saying that the Bible isn't sufficient. What I'm saying is if I don't just read them scripture and then they go do what the scripture says, yeah. I don't know what to do from there. Yeah. And I think, Steve, honestly, that was the first moment that I had to step back and go, Oh no, I have no idea what I'm doing and someone's going to figure it out. Yeah. And I, I would say that in every leadership role I've had to today, yeah. I, I have to fight that back that what if, what if they find out? Even this podcast, honestly, Steve, is, brings anxiousness to me because yeah. I'm thinking, man, Steve's one of my best friends yeah. and he gets this stuff and today he's going to figure out. Oh, this guy really doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> You're anxious about leadership anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad absolutely. I could be a good friend to you and increase your anxiety. 
I, I personally think uh, imposter syndrome is one of the great, uh, great is the wrong word, one of the most powerful destructive forces in a leader, because I think we all have it and it keeps us from leading. When I was a hospital chaplain, 24 years of age, like you, brand new married, and I'm walking into rooms of grief and shock, believing I'm supposed to do something about it. Um, and that's where, for me, I started to realize, oh man, I think leadership is knowing what to do because people, when they don't know what to do, they look to someone else. But most leaders don't know what to do most of the time. So could you talk about the, the gap that happens between when you feel like you should know what to do, but most of the time you don't know what to do? How do you manage that gap? Um, often, you know, I probably manage it a couple different ways, often poorly. Um, <laughs> I'll, uh, uh, to sanitize the way I think of this, uh, I... I make stuff up. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to say I make crap up, yeah. but that's kind of, and and uh -huh. that's not a good thing. It, it's a family trait. You okay. know, we're all leaders. We're all uh, in pastoral roles, and you you get asked questions, and we we have a default. And I'm blaming my family. It, it it's myself, yeah. but a default of I can't let them find out, okay. and so I make stuff up. So I found for me when when I can put aside the ego that says, I have to have the answer. Yeah. Put aside the little voice in the back that says, you don't have any answers. And I'm able to kind of draw on the collective wisdom, either of who's in the room or who's not in the room, but have some connections to. Um, that, that's how it's healthy for me to know, no, I don't always have the answers. I don't know if that makes sense. That's, I think that's really good stuff. Like, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that you have this inner drive to be the expert, even though you're not. But you're able, one of the things you are an expert, I think anyone who knows you, you're one of the most networked, connected people in church ministry in this country, I think. And so you are an expert in finding experts, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right, so we want to move into some specifics of managing anxiety, and we want to start with yourself. So we like to start with the physiology, just like... If, if anxiety is a, a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut, would you be able to name where you think it starts with you? Yeah, it always starts in my head. Spinning mind. It's always a spinning mind. There's always, you know, as we're talking right now, there's a whole other conversation going on in my head, partly because yeah. I'm insane. Yeah, but, yeah. But, or normal, yeah. Yeah, or yeah. normal, yeah. depending on who you're talking yeah, to. sure. So is that what it is for you, like... Um, it's, is it self-talk? Like what, how do you know when you're anxious? What kind of content is going on in your head? For me, it's just a, a, a darkness. Uh, everything's bad. A doom. There's a doom. I, yeah, I think that would be a description of it. And just, um, you know, what we were talking about a while ago, people are going to figure out that yeah, you don't know what you're doing. Thing. You're an imposter. And then, and then, you know, conflict with Sherry is just terrible and it's not going to get better. And, health things going on are just going to get worse and worse. It's just all of those things start piling up. And I, I, I can feel just this, I, I actually have named it, uh, I call it the cloud. Okay. And, and I, as I'm journaling my prayers in the morning and as I'm feeling this feeling, I stop and go, you know, the cloud is back. Oh, wow. And yeah. so I need to pray through, pray through is the wrong word, but I need to verbalize, yeah. at least in my journal, at least to God. And I've actually learned not that long ago to begin to say to Sherry, 
my wife that you know what this this is just I'm in one of those seasons I'm yeah. in one of those times and I, I'm I'm fighting through it but you have to know it's not that things are so bad it's that I internally feel that that's been incredibly helpful I yeah. don't really share that much with other people because I guess I'm a chicken yeah. but I do am <laughs> able to talk with my wife about yeah, that which is helpful really powerful so if it's a cloud how are you doing it forecasting like sometimes you can see the storm coming. And then sometimes it's already in you, like it's it's there and that's when you recognize it. What I can do a little bit better now is I see the things that I have to have in place to, to fight off is not the right word, but to, to keep from getting into the trough too deeply. And I, I know what those things are. And then as I step away from those things, as I see that me not being consistent in mm -hmm. some of those uh, tools or devices or hacks yeah. of my life. Yeah. Um, or then I begin to hear this thought process going on. I go, oh, okay, time out. Yeah. Let's get back to what you know. Let's, let's work on those things and and then, you know, work through it. So you're mentioning that you have quite a regiment of intervention. And you've already mentioned journaling, for example. Would you be willing to share another one or two? Yeah, I would. I would love to call it a regiment. And it, 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 you never sound better than you do on paper sure. or in a podcast, sure. right? Yeah. I I know for me, I have to. And this is so simple that I don't even. I hate even bringing it up. But for me, I have to do some form of exercise okay. in the morning. And as you're sitting looking at me, I'm sure you're thinking, I had no idea he ever exercised at all. No, but I think you're I, very svelte. You're very svelte. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You're very kind. But if if I get out of that routine, and okay. I used to exercise in the morning because I wanted to be built like you and uh -huh. you know all that kind of stuff. Now I, I exercise in the morning on a self-defense. That Just that physical adrenaline that gets popping helps. And, and when I step away for a day or two or three or four, I'll think, oh, the the world is over. Things are awful. I go, no, you simply have quit working out. Yeah, you know, my eating, I, I, I have hypoglycemia, so I have to stay on top of that. You yeah, know, all okay. the normal, all the normal stuff. And then I also, I'm an I'm a, uh, introvert. I started to say extreme. I think everybody's whatever they are in introversion. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can allow myself to become very isolated, mm -hmm. and I find myself not reaching out, not and and I have to be proactive about reaching out and connecting with other people. And, and okay, that's really interesting because yeah. I thought what you were going to say is what a lot of introverts say, which is I need to make sure I have my own time. But you're actually saying that part of the way to get the cloud out is to ensure that I'm interacting with others. So I work for myself out of out of my home now, and so alone time is not a challenge okay. for me. I will get my alone time. Okay. It's the I, I will find myself self isolating two or three days. You know, I haven't spoken to another human. I probably should. So Jeff, uh, um, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, but you absolutely have the unique experience of having had to step into particularly a church or churches where the primary leader, typically the lead pastor, has had to step away because of a scandal. Um, this whole podcast is designed to help leaders notice anxiety and lead through it. So I want to shift our conversation a bit, not to your own internal anxiety, but to group anxiety, because you have moved into highly anxious churches, highly anxious elderships and staffs. And I know you've blogged about it. I think your blogs on it have been really helpful could you talk specifically on what did you notice in the anxiety of these churches you stepped into? What did you see? 
You know, it's interesting. You have actually, you know, helped me a lot process through some of this. And something that you pointed out, honestly, about a year and a half ago was something I hadn't thought about. And as I watched it, it became, I realized it was true that at the root, not of necessarily of the, the failure that led to the crisis in the church, mm-hmm. but after that failure, the root of a lot of the bad stuff that went on was really fear. Yeah. And, and I didn't see that at first. I thought, no, these are just guys powering up. These are just egos. These are, these are, it, it, it's a sense of mistrust. But what I saw is I saw leaders on every side afraid yeah. and not able to really kind of verbalize or realize that. They were afraid that, you know, their truth would be found out or the church would fall apart or, um, you know, they weren't adequate as a leader or they were afraid I wasn't adequate as a leader. But there was a lot of fear that went around and none of us expressed it in the words of fear. That was never the language. There's a lot of raised voices, um, a lot of accusations, but no one was able to humbly say, I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid for my church. I'm afraid for my leaders. I'm afraid for my friends. And um, it, it was eye-opening to me to begin to look through that lens and realize it wasn't really... It, it became, in, in a, particularly one of the situations I stepped into, it, it became an adversarial relationship between two different bodies, the, the staff and the elders, kind of a very adversarial relationship. And as I realized that that there was a lot of fear behind all of that. Um, it wasn't just bad. It, people weren't being bad. They were just responding poorly to an anxiety inside themselves. Yeah. And I'm not just playing into the, to the podcast. I've spent a lot of time really thinking about that. Yeah, it's a powerful, like, unspoken subtext. And I think, you know, going back to kind of the moral failure piece, uh, one of the particular instances I, 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 I stepped into to kind of help shore up the church after a failure by the leader, the leader had been over at our house just weeks before the, you know, it all came out. Mm-hmm. And he and his wife and had dinner and how are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. And behind his eyes, we could just see terror. Yeah. And we kept trying to process with him. You know, you, you're doing okay. Oh, doing good. How are you and your wife? Oh, we're doing great. And the reality was he was overwhelmed with the church. He thought it was going to, the church was young. He thought it was going to fail. He felt like all the financial pressure was on him. And so he, mm. he reacted in a way that led to the complete you know, dissolution of his leadership. Mm. And I think driven behind that was just, part of it was just not the ability to say, how am I doing? I'm, I'm terrified, dying. Yeah. I'm dying yeah. inside. And I think I see that a lot. I see isolation of a leader and I see fear inside of that, that, that I can't do this. Well, and the other, I think the other tricky thing about that story is, you know, we've been kicking around this imposter syndrome idea, but there are leaders actually are, in a sense, imposters in the sense that they, they are actually hiding some deeply damaging, soul-destroying stuff and then looking like everything's fine. That's kind of what you described there. Absolutely. All right, so moving into these churches where there was high anxiety, the, the church is, is in recovery and in shock. One of the sources of anxiety we look at is what's called a, a phantom strike. And a phantom strike is... I love that video game. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's something different. Very similar. A phantom strike is when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, Jeff, me and all these secret friends that I'm not going to give you access to have an opinion about you and your leadership, some version of that. Have you ever encountered that? 
I call it bringing in the choir. Okay. I didn't know there was an official well, term. Well, I made for up it. the term Phantom Strike. Well, I, but I call it the... bringing in the choir. Great. The choir is nameless, faceless, but it's hey. Yes. And usually it is, I'm here as your friend. Yes. <laughs> but some people are talking. Yeah, not me, but not others me, that I'm, yeah. But, and it's always a, the reason I call it a choir, it's always a very, uh, a large number of people, uh-huh. but uns- an unspecific large number of people, uh-huh. and you know they're a little they're worried about the direction you're going. Not yeah. me, but they are. Yeah, and then you I, don't have access to them. To no, because I can't, I can't know who they are. Yeah. So how do you handle that? One thing, one way I handle it is I honestly, by naming it years ago, bringing in the choir. Okay, that it was helps. very helpful for me. Okay, because it's a very specific thing that I deal with in leadership. Everyone deals with in leadership, yeah. and I try to identify it. I don't tell people, oh, you're bringing in the choir. <laughs> okay. But I do try to go, is this really a legitimate thing or is this just kind of a phantom strike? Is this a bringing in the choir type deal? And then I honestly, I process that, I probably process that probably better than some of the other things. I process it externally because I'll say, really, can you who who exactly is it that, that is upset with this? Good. Have you talked with them? Can I talk with them? Good, yeah. And when I hear, oh no, they, they want to keep it anonymous. Yeah. Honestly, Steve, I kind of let that go. go. That's really good because the theory of the Phantom Strike is, is the reason it hurts so much is you didn't know all the firepower behind it. You thought one person was coming to hit you straight on, but there's this actual whole other like army that you and then you can't get access to them. And so it's left as this unknown, unspoken funk, which ends up. And often I find out that the choir is their sister-in-law, you know, I mean, right. <laughs> that is mad at me because we had to let her nephew go six years ago. Right. I had a situation once where the, 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 the choir master, to use your metaphor, came and it turned out that the choir master was the one that had the issue. I actually went through that person to their friends and their friends basically said to me, well, that's just Mark. You know, he just always rants and we don't really know what to do. But he was then interpreting their silence as complicity. Mm. He then recruits him on mm. his choir and then comes to see yeah, me. He's recruited a team. Yeah. Yeah, really good. All right, so we're almost out of time. Uh, one of the things we like to ask every guest, because we think it's just such a simple way to de-escalate anxiety, is um, what do you do for fun? So I'd say basically what I do for fun is read, and okay. then I have grandkids, and that covers everything else. So. Yeah, and then what do you do? I mean, you've already mentioned a couple, but what do you do that make you feel more like a human than a leader? You know, probably would have to go back to the grandparent thing and only grandparents will relate to this because if you have kids and you're not a grandparent, the grandparents are a pain probably because they spoil them and sugar them up and all that. (laughs) But Sherry and I honestly feel called in this stage of life to be the best grandparents we can possibly be. We feel it's a spiritual call Mm. and that is not about leadership or growth. Our kids don't measure, our grandkids don't measure numbers. They don't check offerings. They just, do I want to be around Papa and, and you know, am I, is is Papa fun? That's, that's life giving to me. It's just figuring out how can Papa be fun. Sherry. Yes, sir. So thanks very much for joining me today and being willing to share your story. It's fun just to start by hearing about how did you get into leadership? Yeah, you know, one of my first opportunities um, was actually as I was a teenager and I was uh, very involved in my church and um, my youth pastor's wife asked if I would like to help lead a children's choir. 
I think I was uh, 18 years old. And so I said, absolutely. It was just an incredible experience that I had so much fun with the kids, but also began to think as I would watch myself, think, man, I can lead. I can, uh-huh. I can make things happen. And I loved it. And so that kind of launched from a volunteer perspective, just the awareness of myself that I had some leadership. Um, but I think my first formal opportunity in leadership was when I moved into public education, started as a teacher in the Houston public school system, and then stepped in as an administrative, or a, I'm sorry, as an assistant principal um, in an elementary school, and began to lead teachers at that point, as well as students, and that was fascinating. Yeah, so the move from being a classroom manager, an educator, mm-hmm. to an administrator of adults and of course then parents, yeah. Can you say a little more about that shift and what you had to figure out? Yeah. You know, with children, um, they, uh, I was, uh, most of my experience was in fourth grade in the fourth grade classroom. And to a certain extent as a teacher, you're telling students what to do and they do it because you're the teacher, right? right. It's different when you step into leadership with adults because you, you can't lead that way and just telling them what to do. You have to motivate, you have to inspire and you do that with children too. But it's very different with adults. Um, I began to realize when I was assistant principal that sometimes in leadership you will get a verbal yes, but the spirit uh, does not always follow. Yes. And so um, uh, it, it was really interesting as I look back to think how I had to really form the way I communicated, the way I um, led, uh, just. Um, adults in getting to know them, getting to know who they were, getting to know what motivated and inspired them, and to be able to lead individually with adults. It was very different than leading children, although some of the principles still apply. But you don't walk into a room of adults and say, all right, students, we're going to begin on this assignment. Um, It's just very different. Yeah, so you kind of discovered early on what I think a lot of leaders hopefully eventually discover like you can get people to do stuff but you don't have their hearts exactly And somehow you intuitively figured that out or were you mentored in that or was that something that you just sorted out you know I had a principal that was a master at this and um, I look back on I don't think it was a formal mentorship um, opportunity however I watched what she did I watched the way she led I watched the way she talked to the staff and um, just somehow something in my spirit, I knew that's the right way to do things mm-hmm. um, because I would see the impact she would have um, on teachers. She would get them to want to do what she knew they needed to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a huge part of leadership. You can't force, you can't coerce, you need to inspire. And part of it is in being able to really communicate very well why, why, this needs to be done, why you need to step into this area. So the, the focus and topic of this podcast is really about what it's like when a leader deals with their own internal anxiety and how a leader notices anxiety in the people they're leading. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a story or give us an example of an early leadership encounter where you knew you were out of your league or out of your depth? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I get this question from other women leaders about how to deal with other women. And some of my most difficult experiences have been with other strong women leaders. 
one of the first times I bumped up against somebody where I went, holy cow, I'm, I'm really up against it, was in that same situation as an assistant principal. I wasn't the only assistant principal. There was another lady, very strong leader, very intelligent, very talented, um, but she had kind of her own ways of doing things. And there were many things that we needed to partner on together. And um, I, I bumped up against resistance. And the resistance came in the form of um, sometimes telling me yes, but doing no, right? <laughs> so, and, it's, and that can be extremely frustrating. I remember coming home at times and just being bewildered, mm. thinking, I don't know where that went wrong mm. because I thought I was communicating well. Um, I would hear then from other people that she was upset with something that I had done, but she never came and told me directly. Um, it left me feeling like, um, well, I am a complete, obviously I'm a complete failure at this, mm. right? Um, and, and, you know, it showed up in my leadership and that I began to stop and question myself um, at different points where I really hadn't before. And I would stop and, and ask this question a lot. I wonder if she's happy, right? Mm. And so it started to take me down not a good path in that instead of always following my leadership instincts, sometimes I was guided by um, whether or not my co-assistant principal was happy with my decision, oh, that's good. Was, was pleased with what I was doing, was on board totally with everything you know, that I was doing. And I think out of that, one of the bigger lessons I learned was um, you have to know who you are as a leader and where you're going. You need to be firm in that. And it's not that it's not always impacted by others. Obviously, it will be. And you need to be able to stop and have those difficult conversations. But you also can't let yourself go down that codependent path of expecting everyone to be pleased and happy with what you're doing as a leader. All right. So you're bringing up the idea that you're driven by something other than the leadership goal, which in this yeah. case, if I heard you right, was people pleasing or the approval of someone else. This to me seems to be a common challenge for leaders, but one that we don't talk about a whole lot. So is this a present tense struggle for you? Like you're now aware of it or how, how does that relate for you today in leadership? Oh yeah, I, I think that was the beginning of the awareness of um, some of the codependence that was in myself. Okay. And I often now will tell myself after, you know, 36 years in, in different situations of leadership, I should, I should be better than that. Okay. I should not still be struggling, worrying about whether someone is happy with me yeah. or um, you know, what they're always thinking about this decision. I still struggle with it. And so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm such a quick learner, Steve, that it's taken me 36 years to learn. <laughs> I think I will always struggle with this. This is not something that's gonna go away. Yeah. Um, what I have to do is be able to develop techniques to be able to know when I am getting off of the track of what I know needs to be done, what I know a good leadership move would be, um, and being led down that road by my codependence of other people's happiness. That's really good. All right, so you're aware of it and you mentioned that you have techniques. Would you mind sharing one or two techniques that you find helpful when, when you find yourself following other people's approval over the goal or the mission. Yeah. What techniques are helpful? Well, I found myself when 
I can sense that someone is unhappy with something that I'm doing in my leadership and I can feel anxiety rising. Mm -hmm. And in me, it plays out in, um, I, I'm feeling nervous, I'm feeling anxious. I start having these conversations in my head. Okay, yeah. Um, which, which usually don't aren't productive and they don't go well. But I will, when I catch myself doing that, I will try to pause and ask myself, what is it that I'm worried about? Okay. And that's a good question for me to ask myself because um, it kind of pauses me to stop and think. When I am faced with leadership anxiety, I will usually react in two ways. Either I will power up and really work really hard to convince that person that this is the right decision uh-huh. or they need to be happy about it, um, or I will go dark, meaning I'll just kind of shut down, step away, and... Um, kind of uh, um, try to get myself out of that leadership situation um, and really basically running and hiding from it. And neither one of those responses are good. And so I try to slow myself down, try to recognize what is it I'm about to do? Am I about to power up or am I about to go dark? And let's choose the middle road, Mm. which is let's stay steady. Um, Let's go back to what it is that I really do want to accomplish and what I know needs to be done, but where am I trying to maybe convince someone or maybe not seeking the kind of input that I need to have as I go forward? Yeah, that's really helpful. It's a really concrete way to move through. Out of the average of 10 times you deal with this, how many times do you think you're able to do it well? (laughs) You know, again, I go back to, I should be better at Uh this, right? Um, But I just caught myself the other day um, with someone who, um, she's a power-up person. So I can tell when she's facing anxiety, I can see her powering up. She's trying to convince me no, this is what needs to be done, and yeah. you need to, to just get happy about it. Um, my response to that is, I want to power up even more than her, yeah. and I want to win that power-up contest. Yeah. And I caught myself in the middle of it, thinking, I'm, I'm already going down that road. And I, I paused. Um, something that I have learned it, about myself is, sometimes the best thing for me to do is to stop talking and to listen to what that other person is saying and try to discern from their face and their feelings. What are they feeling inside that is driving that kind of behavior? And I have learned about myself that I will often mirror it. So I'll ask myself, am I mirroring what they are doing that is not healthy? And I would say, back to your question, how many times am I actually successful at that? I would say less than half. Yeah. (laughs) Less than 50% of the time. Yeah. so for our listeners, uh, Sherry and her husband, Jeff, and my wife, Lisa, and I are, are really good friends. And so they know that my wife is now a therapist. But I remember when she came home from grad school and she'd learned this new tool and she simply said it to me. She said, oh, yeah, today we learned about the difference between listening to defend and listening to understand. Mm. And as soon as she said it, I was totally skewered. Like I know most of my listening is to defend. I am more interested in being right than seeking understanding, for example. I think that's a lot of what you were saying. Me too. And when I, inter- when I interact with someone who listens to defend, I slip into that same mode of behavior. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, 
I hear what you're saying, but, you yeah. know, yeah. and I hear that kind of language coming out of my mouth. And um, I try to catch myself in it, but I don't always. And here's what I've realized. When I slip into that mode of behavior, it makes the situation worse. Right, good. And I yeah. know it does. Yeah, 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 but you do it anyway. I do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, which, by the way, you mentioned your wife, Lisa. Um, you, you married way over your head, yeah, Steve. She's sure. brilliant and beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all true. Yeah. All right, so let's get into some specifics then. I think I think I know the answer to this because you've hinted at it, but one of the um, presumptions we make is that anxiety always starts in the physiology. And what we say is it's either in a racing mind, uh, excuse me, I'll try that again, in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Mm-hmm. I think I know what you're going to say, but where would you say for you it starts? You know, I think I notice where it starts in my gut. Okay. So I will feel myself tightening up, um, but probably at the same time, my thoughts are already racing. And um, in my head, I'm moving ahead to where I want that conversation to go. And I'm tightening up in my gut because I'm thinking, um, I'm going to get the conversation to go that way, which is very manipulative. Um and I know it is such, but I, I often will go there anyway. Yeah. And then walking away from a conversation, I often have conversation regret. Yes. Right? right? And I will think, I should not have said that. I wish I would not have said that. I wish I would have said that another way. Yes. And I will tell myself in the moment, Surratt, remember that for next time. Yeah. But often I do not. In the moment, you can't. Yeah. yeah. Anxiety just gets the better of you and it's like, a moth to a flame, right? Yeah. Oh, that's really good. So you're saying you notice it first in your gut, but it's possible that your head had already been spinning for some mm-hmm. time. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, the conversations that I have in my head, the thoughts that I have in my head um, are, are like a tornado that sweeps up everything within me and around me. And um, I, I am really bad about having pretend conversations mm-hmm. In my head mm, yeah. about, uh, well, I I want to tell you this, yeah, you know, and then yeah. you're going to answer me this, and then what is really interesting is out of my anxiety, I will sometimes react to a person or treat a person based on the conversation of things they have said to me in my head. They actually have not really said them, yeah. and so I'm acting in a way that is totally false, yeah. and in a way that they are not aware that they said those things because they didn't say them. It was only in my pretend world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We call this an anger fantasy. You're having an anger fantasy because you're anxious. Yeah. And it's your body's attempt to get control over something you feel out of control over. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes you feel a little crazy. And and I think powerful too. I, in my experience at least, it's a way for me to gain power when I felt hurt or misunderstood or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I. I have tried to really get control of that because I know that having those conversations are not helpful, but I still continue to go there in my head. Yeah. One of the things we're trying to work on is, okay, we're trying to help leaders notice their own internal anxiety, but we're also wanting to help leaders notice anxiety in people they're leading. Yeah. Before we move to others, is there anything else in yourself that you think would be helpful to share? that you've learned about the way you're wired or 
like you've already shared some really great triggers and tools. Yeah, I'm impatient um, just by nature. And I think a lot of really strong leaders kind of lend that way too. And I have learned in myself that my patience is linked to my anxiety. So when I feel like things are not moving fast enough, when I feel like I'm not accomplishing things quickly enough, that is a source of anxiety for mm. me. And um, it causes me then to oftentimes move too fast because I feel like I'm having to operate on catch-up mode. Mm. And um, that, that is not good. And I often will tell myself, um, things are moving along just fine at a fine pace. Mm. You need to relax. You need to slow down. And Jeff will help me with that as well because one of the best things I've learned to do is when I'm feeling really, really anxious, and in fact, we did this yesterday morning. We sat on our back deck and I said, I am not doing well. I am really anxious about mm. this and this and this. And just saying it out loud helps me normalize it. Yeah. And his response to me was, but you know that even in that, this part of that is okay and this part of it is good. Mm. And so he leads my thoughts back to the more sane and rational, talking me off the ledge, if you will. And you know, it's really interesting, Steve, because um, there are so many things about anxiety that are unreasonable. So many things about it that I am cooking in myself. Mm. And just being able to put words to it mm. helps me, even as I hear me say it, helps me to realize that's not really as big a deal as I am making it. Or, um, actually, I think that's probably going to be okay. I am needlessly worrying. Mm. And, you know, sometimes people will, you know, spout statistics of 97% of what we worry about never actually happens. Um, I don't always find that statistic helpful for me because I automatically go to the, yeah, but 3% did. Okay, yeah. <laughs> which, which is ridiculous, yeah. right? But um, One of the theories also is that anxiety competes for the same space that God exists in. So have you had a time um, where you've encountered God on the other side? Like you, you do this amazing job of being aware and then you've got these tools in your life to de-escalate it. In my life, I guess I've found that that's the space that God, I discover God's already there. But when I'm managing my own anxiety, I forget that God's with me. I don't know if that makes sense, but it does. have you had an encounter of God like that? Yeah, it does. I, I, um, will try to engineer my own calmness and uh, I'm not very good at it. And so when I remind myself to slow down and to listen to what God is already saying, and in many of the moments in anxiety, I feel like God is not there. He's not saying anything. Mm -hmm. He has forgotten about me. Yes. And when I slow down to still my own thoughts, I realize God has been saying things to me all along. Yeah. And it's me that has not been listening. Yeah. And I think part of that is part of my leadership makeup as well in that I'm constantly doing um, and I need to slow down and listen more. Yeah. Um, Jeff has a great practice that maybe he'll talk about as well where he, he journals his prayers and he writes them out, which forces him to slow down. I, I don't do that. I'm such an impatient person that I can't even wait <laughs> for myself to type, right? Uh -huh. um, but I do, in the mornings, try to sit in the same chair with a hot cup of coffee. And I try to ask, you know, 
ask God, what is it you need to say to me for today? Mm. Because it makes me anxious to look too far forward. Yeah. Um, to focus just on today is enough for my plate. And then I really do try to sit and hear God's words. I'm, I'm not always great at it. Um, sometimes I will find myself engineering what I think God wants to say mm, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which he's so much better at yeah. what he has to say than what I think he needs to say. Yeah. Okay, so Sherry, you've had um, a lot of experiences where you've come into, for example, an existing organization where there's a long, rich history, mm-hmm. and maybe you've seen some changes that need to be made that others haven't seen. Uh, or maybe you've come into a situation where you just notice that there's an anxiety in the group. Could you speak to any of that? And then I'll get to some more specifics. Yeah. Um, I had an opportunity as a CEO to step into an organization that had already been going 40 years and had a rich history. There were so many incredible things about the organization that I did not know um, and had to learn. And I felt like I had to learn it at a very quick pace. Mm. And probably looking back, did not give myself enough time to really learn it. And I needed to ask more questions about um, why was this part established? Mm. Why was this process established? I came in very quickly and tried to learn what the process was, but needed to spend more time on the history. So as I came in, um, the organization was experiencing some, some financial difficulties and that was a source of great pressure for me. Mm, yeah. I felt like I had to have the answers, had to get that turned around quickly, um, was really putting unreasonable demands on myself. And here's the interesting thing. The board of directors were very supportive, and they told me at the time, take your time. We're not expecting immediate results. Um, I heard that in my own head as get going mm, and figure this out. Yeah. And um I, I was the one putting extreme pressure on myself. And I have to believe, Steve, that that is tied to leadership pride. I wanted people to say, look how quickly she turned that right. around. She's look amazing. at the incredible answers. And as I came in and tried to um, implement things quickly, I caused anxiety in the staff. Um, there were particular people on, the, on staff who um, were ready for change. But there were people who were not, and it scared them. And you know, immediately when you come in with new ideas, people are asking, how is it going to affect me? Yeah. They're, they're less interested really in how is that going to affect the organization. What they're really saying is, what does that mean for my job? What does that mean for my pay? What does that mean for my job security? Yeah. And looking back, I should have... Um, come in and addressed that a little better. Some of the signs of anxiety that I saw in the staff as I came in to make changes was um, some people felt like um, they needed to share, you know, uh, every bit of their opinion on on those things that I would talk about. And um, sometimes I uh, would, would welcome and solicit that that information but there were other parts of me that secretly I would, in my head, I would think, um, I, I don't know that I need to hear every part of your opinion, <laughs> right? And then there were other people who on the outside would say, oh, great, you know, definitely we need to do that. We need to, to, to change that. 
but then on the inside, that is not how they felt. Yeah. But they, they really weren't expressing it. Um, I tried as a new CEO to come in and um, uh, hear from them what they felt needed to be changed, um, to you know have our ideas of change be organic, you know, come from the teams themselves. But I don't know that I did a great job with that just because of my own leadership anxiety of come on, come on, we uh-huh. gotta get this going. This we gotta, we gotta uh-huh. Yeah, you pressurize the whole system in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. When we react strongly to something, um, a lot of times there are several layers to that strong reaction. So sometimes we are anxious about something, but then we will blow up at something else. Okay. And um, I had this particular experience about um, a, a particular team um, in that organization that I was working with, and that leader had come to me to say, we need um, to, to change some things here. And so we talked together about some changes, and then when we began to implement, um, she exploded, and it caught me by surprise. And I thought, she's the one who asked for this. You know, yeah. She's the one who came up with some of these solutions. As I dug in deeper with her in conversation, um, I realized actually that change that we'd implemented implemented really wasn't what she was so upset about. It was related to something else that had changed on another team that she felt like impacted her directly, but we had not asked her input on it. Mm. Um, and I think I, I will notice this myself, that when I let anxiety build, um, it's like a pot you know, boiling yeah. and the lid is going to to blow off, right? But it can blow off at any moment, not necessarily related to exactly what's going on in that moment. Here's what I try to remind myself to do is to slow down and get at the emotion, Mm. not necessarily ask for facts. To say, I see that you're feeling like this. Tell me a little bit more about that feeling. Um, And I have found that really effective when people will do that with me as well. Yeah. Um, if I could shift directions then, just three more questions. Yes. I'd love to get your take on uh, gender dynamics because you've worked in organizations that are very female focused. You've mm-hmm. also worked in organizations that have men and women working together. And you've yeah. also worked where men have more power than women. So you've got this unique perspective. Just what would you want to share with people about that whole situation? Working with um, men and women, and, and a lot of times people will ask me, um, you know, about the leadership development for women. I feel like leaders develop basically in the same way, whether they are a man or a woman, but there are definitely different dynamics in working with those two groups. Um, I personally um, identify a little bit more in working with men. Men are sometimes very factual, very to the point. Um, they, they like you to be direct. They will often be very direct with you, and I appreciate that. With women, many times, um, the, emo- the emotion, the history, um, the feelings of others in the room, not just that woman, but many times women are very in tune, very concerned with how everyone is feeling collectively. Mm. And so if you try to step in as a leader and ignore any of those things, um, it may not go well with you. <laughs> mm, you won't go as far, for example. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting, Steve, because early in my leadership, and Ginny uh, Catron and I wrote a book together on um, entitled Just Lead, and it was really for women leaders in the church. 
and we talked about navigating the landmines in leading women. And uh, we have one chapter called "Take the Boxing, Take Your Boxing Gloves Off," uh -huh. you know, um, meaning basically, you know, learn some ways to get along with other women. But when I wrote that book, I had not really experienced bumping up against um, a woman who was extremely resistant to my leadership at huh. that point. Yeah. After I wrote the book, I have come up against um, a couple of different incidences when I have walked away from another woman leader thinking, wow, I, <laughs> I feel like I just walked into a, a volcano, you know? And um, it's, it's really difficult. Women leaders um, are brilliant. I honestly believe they can lead at any capacity. Um, they can lead just as well as any man out there. They bring so many wonderful things to the table, but they also can be manipulative. Um, they can bring levels of emotion that probably will catch you by surprise. Um, it can be very, very difficult to navigate. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with men and women, you need to let them know I care about you as a person, not just what you can do for me or for this organization. I found that that's really important mm. to women. If another woman senses that you are trying to manipulate her or trying to bully her or force her into things that she is not in agreement with, um, you need to slow down. Mm. doesn't mean you need to, to stop. It just means you need to slow down and really learn about her and let her know I'm not here to overpower you. I'm here to care about you and come alongside and together we can do our best. So I, I've always felt that I'm fairly um, aware and I would describe myself as a feminist. At the same time, in the last two years, I feel like I'm on a whole new learning journey of power dynamics between men yeah. and women, particularly in church. Like obviously my context is church leadership. And it's been really, I'll just be honest, it's been really humbling to realize how much I still have to learn. What would you, as a woman leader who's done a lot of leadership in church, have to say to men in church leadership that you think would be helpful for us to hear? That's a great question, Stephen. I really do appreciate it. Um, I've come across so many wonderful um, men in church leadership who honestly believe in women leaders. They know that women are very talented. They know that women can lead. But um, fear, sometimes I feel like, keeps them a little bit separated. So they, uh, with the whole Me Too movement, mm -hmm. they just want to be very sensitive to mm -hmm. women. They want to make sure that they are treating women with the respect that women deserve. Um, but I will say, here's what I've observed over the last couple of years, that this is causing a wider chasm of separation. Mm. So some men are more fearful now, I think, of working with women um, because they are afraid of making a mistake. And one thing I would like to encourage men to do is just be honest about that with women because I think we're going to get it. I really appreciate it when a man says, um, hey, I, I, I don't know exactly the right thing to do here. Yeah. Help me with that. Um, please, I invite you to tell me when you feel like I'm being insensitive or maybe coming across as a bully. Um, because what I hear when a man says that 
is I hear he has good intentions, but he's admitting he doesn't always know the right thing to do. Mm. And I respect that. Yeah. I respect that when I hear that from any other leader, whether it's a man or a woman, because there's humbleness at the root of that, right? And I, I just, I'm heartbroken over you know the stories that we have heard recently. We need to pay attention to them. Um, but I, I really, it would break my heart even farther if it causes men to just shy away from using women in leadership yeah, because right. of it. Yeah, just purely out of fear and defensiveness. So. Right. Yeah. All right, and you're also, I think, unique in that you've had very formal leadership roles with a title and a business card and all that. But you've also had informal leadership roles where you have leadership, but it might be your pastor's wife or something like that. Yeah. Talk to us about the importance of platform and authority. Like, What's your reaction to the different types of leadership roles you've had? Do you know, uh, one of the big principles um, in the book that Jenny and I wrote, Just Lead, was something I learned from Nancy Ortberg, who said, um, stop fighting for your title. Stop fighting for your place at the table. Just lead well. Mm. No matter what the situation is, whether you are a volunteer or whether you are leading a whole organization, bring your A game every single time. Um, don't put on the cloak of feeling like you have to prove yourself everywhere you go. Just be a good leader. Hmm. Treat people well, um, whether they can do anything for you or not. Um, be honest. Have integrity. Let people see your character. Be humble. Um, don't try to uh, pretend that you are better at things than you are not. Um, and what that will ultimately earn you is it will earn you that title. It will earn you that seat at the table. And um, among women leaders especially, there's a, a sometimes a sense of scarcity in that sometimes women in an organization will see just very few women leading at the top. And so it causes a sense of competition sometimes, like I've got to prove myself, I've got to claw my way to the top, yeah. and that's actually the opposite of what you need to do. Um, I think, uh, I, I try to remind myself of those words that Nancy spoke, and I heard her on a podcast speak them, and she also, I got a chance to sit with her, and she spoke them to me directly. Mm. She said, just lead well, yeah. just do your best, and the title um, and the opportunities will come. All right, so then in closing, um, we believe that one of the best de-escalators of anxiety is fun. What's one or two things you do for fun? Oh, my goodness. Um, Jeff and I have three grandkids, and um, I, I think children are the great normalizer, right? So yeah. I can have a great leadership opportunity, and that evening go and crawl on the floor with my grandkids. Yeah. And um, it is so much fun. Watching my grandkids is, uh, it's, it's moments of time standing still because I see in the faces of my grandkids, um, they all belong to my son. So I see uh, parts of my son. Mm. And, um, but I also at the same time see uh, their generation to come. And um, I lose myself in playing with my grandkids. And I feel like you have to have those moments where you uh, forget about being a leader, you forget about the things you've accomplished, and you just sit on the floor and play a ridiculous game that has no point, and you laugh till you snort something out your nose, you know? I mean, th <laughs> those are the moments that I think um, God 
restores your soul. Oh, that's good. And as a leader, if you don't have something like that, whether it's uh, playing a game or um, being silly or laughing with friends or playing with your grandkids, you, you, need, you need to find it because every leader needs it. If you found the podcast beneficial, you can help us out by subscribing to make sure every episode is delivered straight to you. You can also take 30 seconds and leave us an honest review on iTunes. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.